0: Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, where we take a behind-the-scenes, intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field.
1: Welcome back to Behind the Knife's APSA 50th Anniversary Series. We hope you are enjoying the interviews and talks so far. Today, our guests are a panel of phenomenal surgeons and leaders. Dr. Katherine Anderson attended Cambridge University, where she earned a bachelor and master's of arts before moving to the United States. She then attended Harvard Medical School, followed by an internship in pediatric medicine at Boston Children's Hospital because she was denied a surgical internship. After a year, she joined the Georgetown University Hospital General Surgery Residency, but left after two years due to gender discrimination. After working in community hospitals with a higher volume of operative time, she completed a pediatric surgery fellowship at Children's National Medical Center. She went on to become professor and chair of surgery at Children's National, surgeon in chief at Children's Hospital in Los Angeles, chair of the surgery section of the American Academy of Pediatrics. She's on the editorial board of the Journal of Pediatric Surgery. She was the first woman to rise in the ranks of the American College of Surgeons and the American Pediatric Surgical Association. On top of all of this, she was a surgeon scientist with research interest in esophageal replacement. We also have Dr. Diana Farmer, who was one of the first guests on Behind the Knife back in June 2015, episode 11. She is an internationally renowned fetal and neonatal surgeon, chair of the Department of Surgery at UC Davis, and a very active surgeon scientist. She earned her bachelor's at Wellesley College in Massachusetts, followed by her MD at the University of Washington. She then completed her general surgery residency at UC San Francisco, followed by Pediatric Surgery Fellowship at the Children's Hospital of Michigan. Among many honors, she was elected to the Institute of Medicine of the National Academies, one of the highest honors in medicine. Finally, we are joined by Dr. Marion Henry. Associate Professor of Surgery and Pediatrics at the University of Arizona and Surgeon-in-Chief at Banner-Diamond Children's Hospital. She completed her bachelor's degree at Princeton University, followed by medical school at Stanford, and general surgery training at Stanford University and Yale, where she obtained her master's in public health. She finished her pediatric surgery fellowship at the Children's National Medical Center, Dr. Henry was an active-duty surgeon in the Navy for nine years, earning the rank of commander. She is extremely active in advocacy efforts for the American College of Surgeons and the American Pediatric Surgery Association, and is a leader in the Association of Women Surgeons. So, Dr. Anderson, why don't you get us started here? So, who is Benji Brooks, and and what is
2: the society?
3: Benji Brooks was um, one of the first female members of APSA, first APSA first female pediatric surgeons, period, and she was one of the first people who got actual training from Dr. Robert Gross. Now, Dr. Robert Gross was a wonderful surgeon, a great human being, and a great innovator, as I know you're aware, but he'd never trained a woman, and By reputation, he had, uh, um, he had prejudice against doing so. Dr. Charles Janeway was the chief of pediatrics at the Boston Children's Hospital and was a, a contemporary of Dr. Gross. And one day he went up to Dr. Gross and he said, Dr. Gross, I have this resident who wants to be a pediatric surgeon. And would you train this person? And Dr. Gross, of course, assumed that this Benji Brooks was a male. So he said, sure. No, no interview. Everything was very informal in those days. So the first day Benji Brooks arrived, and that was when Dr. Gross discovered that she was a woman. But he trained her anyway. She was from Texas, and she was along with a few others who were the pioneers. I had the great fortune to be in the second generation of female pediatric surgeons. I don't know, perhaps it's not really great fortune considering my age now, but um, we uh, there were a very small group. And one of the papers in the, those early days was a paper about not just lopping out the spleen of a child who had splenic trauma, and it was routine that we all did that. And there was a paper presented on a series, and I can't remember who the author was or uh, how many patients they had, but they had an enormous success rate and were presenting that of the conservative management of uh, ruptured spleen in children. And Benji Brooks got up and she said, and I wish I, I can't, I can't mimic an American accent. <laughs> and I certainly can't mimic a Texas accent. <laughs> she got up in her inimitable way and she said, you know, I've been doing this for years. And she said, I got up and talked about this uh, in a previous year. And she said, she was very salty. She said, well, I presented this several years ago and I got an immediate response from a number of people, but I can't tell you what they said because there are gentlemen present.
1: <laughs>
3: <laughs> that's that's my story about uh, Benji.
4: So, I guess Dr. Anderson, if you were part of the second generation, I guess I'm part of the third generation of women in pediatric surgery, and I do remember that there were a few of us who would meet uh, in one of these, just, just like this, one of the breaks or sometime after the meeting was over. In those days, there were usually two alternatives for the free afternoon. That was a day when we had free afternoons at APSA, and they were always golf or tennis. So a few of us women got together and we'd sit in the back of the room and say, well, you know, we really don't play golf or tennis. Maybe we can come up with some other activities. And this went on for a few years that we would talk about that we wanted something else to do and we wanted an opportunity for women to get together. In the very beginning, the when we asked for permission to get a room, we were essentially told, we didn't want any more of these splinter groups to form in APSA. They had uh, described splinter groups uh, in the college. So then we got smart and said, well, we I guess we won't ask for a room. We'll just start doing it ourselves. And we started very simply, uh, never as a formal organization, but uh, just getting together for lunch or an alternative. We participated in ideas. We put out ideas for either spa afternoons or just lunch. I think we arranged, I think uh, Rebecca Myers helped us arrange kayaking one time. Uh, And we continued on in a fairly informal way. Finally, uh, APSA was willing to uh, give us a room and put us on the uh, program. We thought that was a big advance. We still had to buy our own lunch, but we were okay with that. Um, but that was a big step. And at some point in the course of that, I'd probably say maybe two or three years into it, we decided that we should probably have a name. And <clears throat> we did a little bit of research on, indeed, was it was Benji the first pediatric surgeon? And there was some, a little bit of uh, controversy, some research, some looking into other things, but the consensus really was that, indeed, she was the first pediatric surgeon. And that's how we self Appointed ourselves the Benji Brooks Society, and then I think I'll pass the microphone to Marion Henry, who I would I would say brought us home. So tell tell um, the team about sort of the recent success that you've helped us create.
0: Sure. So I'll tell about the recent success and then say, but I want to say first that my story starts. I'm not going to say what generation I am because I don't know. It all gets blurry. <laughs> But when I fell in love with surgery as a third-year medical student and went to my first American College of Surgeons as a fourth-year medical student, Dr. Catherine Anderson was the president of the American College of Surgeons. So that was a pretty uh, incredible role model and an incredible year to attend as a medical student. And at that time, Dr. Farmer was at UCSF still, and our... Uh, our medical schools or hospitals were briefly joined and so I remember pediatric surgery meetings f- phone meetings teleconferences with uh, the joint departments of pediatric surgery bef- between Stanford and UCSF and so that is my connection to these women with me here and how I got very inspired in pediatric surgery and involved early on in being able to attend these Benji Brooks luncheons and then the first year it got on the program officially was the year Dr. Tolukian was president and I was a lab resident at Yale in Larry Moss's lab but with Dr. Tolukian right down the hallway so that was a very exciting time to be coming through the whole process of you know training in pediatric surgery so I have been attending those luncheons since that time frame and uh, last year at the get together, the question was posed: Do we need this anymore? Are there enough women now in pediatric surgery that that this is obsolete and not necessary? And I would say that there was not, I think, a single a person in the room who said no, we don't need this anymore. There was a very loud voice of women that said, yes, there are still issues and there is still work to be done and we do need this. And so we discussed then what form should it take? Should we stay the Benji Brooks Society and move outside of APSA and work on our own as a separate society of women in pediatric surgery? And we decided instead that really women needed to be at the table and in the room where it happens, and that the way we could make the most impact was to petition to be a true APSA committee so that we could be not only on the program for a luncheon, but on the program for workshops and educational sessions and uh, plenary sessions. And uh, so we wrote up a, a letter to the Board of Governors requesting a full committee that was dedicated to women in surgery, and they approved it so that the committee is now officially an APSA committee, the Benji Brooks Women in Surgery Committee.
2: You mentioned that Dr. Anderson um, was the president of ACS and she was the first female president of ACS and also first female president of APSA. You were just making a joke about your head being flat from breaking all these glass ceilings. Um, tell us, you know, people don't always talk about um, the adversity that they face and, and you being a groundbreaker like this. Wh- how, how was it to go through those challenges and how much do you appreciate uh, how we've progressed now with the Benji Brooks Society and with all these women in surgery who are mentors to women like us here who are um,
3: aspiring to be pediatric mm-hmm. surgeons. One of the things I'd like to say is that for me one of the major reasons that we should con- we should have a, a group of women together is that I kind of got tired of the old boy network. You know, people would be sitting around a table and I would make and this was in my uh, work as a a surgeon and uh, I would make a suggestion and there was no response and then five minutes later a man would bring up the same question oh Dr. So-and-so that's a wonderful idea and I just sat there thinking men network and they've always networked and I found that as I went through my career, yes, I was comfortable with men. I had to be because I was often the only woman in the room or in the gathering, etc. But I also gravitated towards the wives, and I felt extremely comfortable with them. And so that was an additional reason for, for me to be um so much of a part of the women in in pediatric surgery. Now, as far as prejudice, I don't talk about things that happened in um, in my um, not so much in my medical uh, student career because I don't think I ever encountered any prejudice either at Cambridge. Um, where we were a class of 120 students per year and there were eight women more than the Harvard school that I joined halfway through. But when I, um, as I think I, I use this anecdote when, uh, during the, the last meeting that when I asked Francis Moore, uh, if he would give me a surgical residency, when and if, um, I came back to Boston, and he said he'd rather give me a job in anesthesia. That really was a big jolt for me, but it didn't it didn't deter me, and uh, I went to George Washington, and Brian Blades wouldn't give me a job, because he said, oh, you'll have to start again as an intern, and I'd already was in the middle of a pediatric internship at the time, but Georgetown did. They gave me a, a position. And I really can't say that that there was much prejudice, certainly not from my fellow residents. There were there were some men who thought they were God's gift to women, as many women find out when they join a man's world, and that's where the Me Too movement came from, I suppose. But I just shrugged it off because I knew that in order to get the same distance of a man as a man, I had to be better. And as women usually say, that's not hard. Pardon me. You can edit that out. <laughs>
5: oh no, we're going to leave that. That's
6: precious.
3: <laughs> when I when I finally finished, I wondered how men patients would be. Never had any problem. I was often mistaken for a nurse, and that was okay. You sort of get used to that, and I didn't. I didn't let it offend me. Um, but there were many instances where there were there were um, men surgeons who uh, were a little physical. Just leave it at that. But there were never any patients, any men male patients. They were just so grateful and they were more grateful because women do talk more to their patients and their families and so on. And um, so I never had any prejudice since then. And as I went up the ranks in the AAP and then APSA and and, and the college, I really didn't find that there was any difference in the way I was treated. So hopefully that that helped other women and I don't know what Diana has to contribute to that since she's younger than I am.
4: Well there's no question that uh, Kathy people like yourselves uh, made it easier for those of us that followed and that the I think being the first of something is often challenging. It's not that you uh, seek to be the first. I, I'm the first woman fetal surgeon, but I only aspired to being a fetal surgeon. I never thought about, as I'm sure you really didn't either think, you know, make a plan to be the first woman president of APSA or the first woman president of the college. You just aspired to contribute to those organizations uh, like anybody else. and, uh, became the first of those. But I do think it helps others, even the, even if it's not a goal. It does break the mold. It makes people realize, oh, it's okay. I do think that there was extra pressure to be even more excellent than average, if that is such a thing. <laughs> and I think there is additional importance to serve those positions with distinction because there now are the non-believers who are paying attention as well. And I think that's where the extra pressure comes, that did this person get the job because they were deserving or did they get the job because someone paved the way just for a woman or just for a minority or something like that? So, I think uh, for the early pioneers, there is that extra pressure to make sure that you, um, A, deserve the positions and demonstrate that you're worthy in them. Eventually, the time will come when, I hope, when, just as Martin Luther King said, you know, I have a dream and I hope that in the future my children will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the quality of their character. And I think we all hope that uh, eventually that will be the case. But in the meantime, it's important to go that extra mile.
3: I'd like to make one
4: more uh, comment
3: before Marion tells us about her experience. But women have been beaten down in society for so long. Women have even questioned themselves. And I have had numerous young women come up to me and say, you know why am i doing this i talked to uh, the the uh, pediatric surgeon from Bahrain yesterday and she she was so typical of many women in societies that are beaten down and she said i'm just wonder whether why sh- can i do it can i really be everything that i want to be so women have a little bit of an inferiority complex, and that's where I think we can help other women get over that inferiority complex. There's nothing inferior about a woman.
4: I would just like to add to that that particularly my work in global surgery and overseas work has really brought that point that you're making to sharp focus, that we are so privileged in this society to have the freedom that we women do um, and it hasn't been that many generations uh, where women were afforded those same opportunities for education and the like and we should never take it for granted because certainly in many societies around the world um, it is uh, the expectation for women is only to be there to service men and raise the children and etc. and that we should not take for granted the enormous opportunities that we have here. And therefore, I think we do have an extra responsibility.
0: The wonderful opportunity that the the society had and the committee now has it is both to, you know, share and celebrate those who came before us because they really did pave a way. You know, I have not been the first in in anything, which is great. <laughs> Actually, I guess that's not true. I'm the first female chair of the Health Policy and Advocacy Committee because it's only that many years old. <laughs> but otherwise, I, um, I'm i happy to say I have not been the first because there are people who paved the way for, for me to get there. And that doesn't mean there are not still challenges. And I see uh, leaders ahead of me, women leaders ahead of me face those challenges. And uh, you know, there are still inequalities in terms of leadership position in particular in, in surgery in general. And, uh, we hope to look at exactly where we are in the world of pediatric surgery with the status of women and what, what leadership positions they hold. And, um, we're, as a 50th anniversary project, uh, want to tackle that project. But, but we still, we still face challenges that are somewhat different, somewhat the same, and sometimes we raise the questions that impact everyone, um, both men and women, And uh, but we're willing to raise the questions of how do you um, manage all the aspects of life that you want to manage, whether that's research and career and home life, whatever home life looks like for you, um, I think it also means we can help mentor and sponsor not just women, but deserving men and women who otherwise are underrepresented. And, um, so the, you know, we have that both, uh, privilege to thank those who've paved the way for us, but responsibility to continue to help others, um, overcome the challenges that those ahead of us faced and and overcame for us. Um, and I think that's one of the wonderful things about having a committee of this nature is is we can we can do those the the dual um, goal of of both recognizing and working for even better times for everyone.
4: But I was struck at the meeting. There was great and lively conversation, and there was still lots to talk about, and that we're. Not finished, and that I was very pleased that the decision had been made to continue. And uh, I, I remember, uh, you made you asked the question about balance, and I remember making the comment then. But I, when I was a an undergraduate, I went to a women's college, and I remember getting the advice at that time that you can indeed do it all, and that we should not limit our ambitions in any way, no matter whom you are, and that. You just maybe can't do it all at the same time. And the advice then was you could have a social life and a career and a family life, but you probably couldn't have all three of those things at the same time. And however that's defined, I think that's really true. But uh, I was very pleased at the meeting uh, the other morning that there was still so much lively interaction. And there are now so many women that if we went around the room and introduced each other, which is what we used to do, that it would... It would take three hours, so that was great. So it was really fun. I think I want to put a caution
3: in because having been one of the only women in a group of men for whatever reason, uh, not just in surgery, but the, the t- there can be a tendency among women who are the only ones. Maybe it's a token or you know, it's a developing field. To basically not help other women. And that I have been subjected to. And it's extremely disappointing to me that that would happen. That a woman, you know, feels special because she's cherished by her group of men around her and she doesn't want to let anybody else in. And we've got to caution
4: against that. Yes, I, I would share similar experiences as I went through, and I'm. But I'm happy to say there's less of that. I'm. I think I'm seeing. You know, I think we. I think particularly, I'll speak for APSA that I would say that people have been great with this. I remember, in fact, Dr. Anderson giving me the advice, advising me to start contributing, start actually contributing to APSA and the APSA Foundation and the College and. No one had ever suggested that to me before. It was very interesting. It just had never occurred to me that that was something you should do. And how glad I was after I started doing that and there were years I felt like I could contribute more or less, but I've made it ever since that day. I have made it a habit to make sure that I contributed to the organizations that mattered to me and just you kind of need somebody once in a while to tell you what are the things to do and and what's right and and what are the unspoken sort of social mm-hmm. norms of uh, moving forward? So I really appreciated that, that girl to girl advice.
3: Well, I'm very glad that one of my advice has been taken by somebody. <laughs> <laughs> I think one of the roles of,
0: of a committee like the Benji Brooks Women in Surgery Committee is to help lift all women. And so to help combat against that potential, um, you know, problem of, of a woman not. Not lifting others around, around her or, or, you know, any other underrepresented person who, who has a position. Um, and we had an interesting discussion on, on tokenism in the, in the committee or in the, uh, lunch meeting, uh, yesterday. Um, but to that end, the committee, you know, aims to put together lists of women speakers and so that, Someone doesn't have to rely on the one woman they know or the one person they know who can speak on this or the one department that has people, but that we have an, an ability to sort of have resources throughout the country, throughout programs, academic and community, large and small, and really, um, you know, lift, all, lift all women as well as all members of APSA to, to contribute as much as they can and and really you know call on the wisdom of all rather than just the wisdom of few who get called on frequently <laughs>
2: And that's actually a great transition to kind of the question I had. And I wanted Dr. Anderson to repeat the story you told about your lapel pin, because that's also in talking about the APSA logo this year has been changed to be not divisive and very inclusive. There's no genders. There's no race, nothing. Everyone's represented with this logo. You can talk about the meaning of that too. But then also, I'd love for our listeners to hear the story about your lapel pin, because I thought that was great.
3: Okay. Well... As, as you know, I was the first woman president of APSA and I had been a little bit irritated for some years because I'd been in APSA since 1973 and I became president in 1999. So it's quite a, a period of reflex, reflection for me. And the, the APSA logo was uh, Lucian Leap, I think, told the story this morning about how that came about. He just got uh, uh, somebody to, uh, Keith Ashcraft, to to pose. But it, it bothered me. It was an irritant. And Hardy Hendren is, is a hero of mine and has been, as I said, for a long, long time. Very, very supportive of women, and particularly of me. And Pat Donahoe, And he just thought it was offensive to have a woman president having to wear a man's profile on her uh, on her lapel. And so he by himself um, found somebody, got me to my husband to take a picture of me holding something uh, resembling vaguely remember resembling a baby. And uh, and he had this pin made, which uh, which um, Diana is showing you, and every female president since then. But as I said in the in the uh, in the panel discussion, that was really as sexist as the male logo before. So I brought up. It was quite a few years ago that I brought up uh, in in a, a business meeting that we really ought to change the uh, the logo. And I think that was probably about seven or eight years ago. Um, and, and and this has come to fruition this year.
4: So I will just uh, corroborate that story that Dr. Anderson would come to the microphone at the business meetings and uh, suggest that the logo be changed. And at least for the first three years, you were roundly... Not quite booed. It was a little more polite than that. Um, although Dr. Ashcraft, I remember once coming to the mic saying something something close to "over my dead body." <laughs> um, but it's what was interesting to me today was to see how well received the new logo has been. Um, there has been not been any wholesale walking out or complaints about it. I think it was socialized well over time. I think the uh, 50th Anniversary Committee made a point of let's tie it to the 50th anniversary, that it's appropriate time for a change, and it has gone very smoothly. But at the first couple of meetings that you presented it, it was not at all well-received. There was a feeling that APSA did not need to change. We should stick with these traditions. It was pretty vocal.
3: Actually, I don't remember that I really don't, and thank you for telling me about that because I got, I had become so inured to criticism that I just let it go
4: over my head, and uh, so thank you. Uh, no, they didn't make it easy on you, uh, Kathy, about that, and uh, but I, uh, I do think that 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 quality of being come becoming somewhat numb to the criticism is actually. Um, somewhat common, and uh, so it it's important to have historians look at history from a variety of different perspectives.
0: I can only add that I do remember the negativity to the uh, to the commentary, and that, as a younger uh, woman coming up in APsa, that was somewhat distressing and um so I was very pleased to. See that the change in the last few years, as they work towards this new logo, and that it's not just a gender change; it is really designed to be a, a, a surgeon of any gender, race, um, and the child as well. You know, it is equally inclusive, and that that um, you know that 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 new logo has really been able to include everyone in in our community. Um, so that it is um, so that we are inclusive and diverse and
3: uh, keeping to those principles I think that there is a danger of the old people wanting to hang on to power and I think we should get the heck out of the way and leave it to people like
5: you too. I think that's a perfect note to end on. Thank you all so much for this tremendous honor. It is a remarkable privilege to be in your company. And I believe this will uh, wholly inspire a next generation to come. Thank you so much. Welcome back to another episode of Behind the Knife. This is Wu Do um, at the 50th anniversary meeting of the American Pediatric Surgical Association. Today, I have the distinct pleasure of sitting with Dr. Mike Chen. He is the professor of surgery at the University of Alabama at Birmingham, UAB, also the Joseph M. Farley Chair in Pediatric Surgery, the Director of the Division of Pediatric Surgery, and Surgeon-in-Chief at the Children's of Alabama Hospital. Dr. Chen, thank you so much for your time.
6: Oh, thank you. Um, This will be an interesting opportunity here.
5: So, Dr. Chen, we wanted to sit with you. You've had uh, quite a unique experience uh, as far as patient-centered care goes. Uh, would you mind telling our audience about a uh, particularly harrowing experience you had where you as a surgeon had to experience the flaws of the American healthcare system yourself?
6: Well, um, will thank you for the opportunity to talk about something that I've, I've become passionate about um, in the last few years. Um, I've always thought that taking care of patients mean um, thinking about the patient first, and I thought I was doing that, but I never realized how out of whack our healthcare system really is. Um, a little over two years ago, um, I got very sick. I was in a hospital for seven weeks, I was in the ICU for four weeks, and um, I discovered that nobody really understands what patient-centered care is. Um, our her- our hospital run um, runs like a prison, um, the patients are at the whims of this schedule of the hospital, and a hospital does not um, operate this the system and the resource and the care around the patient. So, um, as an example. Um, I got very sick and as a typical surgeon, um, reluctant to go to the hospital for several days and then eventually um, gave up and went to the hospital. Hypoxic and ended up in a medical intensive care unit. Um, so they tested me for influenza in the, in the um, ER and it was positive. I got a chest x-ray and I had a bilateral pneumonia, um, oxygen saturation in the 80s. And then they um, moved me to, uh, to the ICU. And my wife was with me, but they wanted to um, check her for influenza before they allow her on the hospital ward. And my wife is a pediatric surgeon as well, Elizabeth Byerly. And so um, they um, tested her, and then while they were waiting for the result, they sent me upstairs. So I show up in the ICU, and as many of you know, um, there's a gaggle of people that descend on, on the patient when they get to the ICU, the nurses, respiratory therapists, and whatnot. Um, you know, five, ten people um, run in there and make sure the monitors are are attached and everything's working. And so everybody descends on me and I don't remember all the details, but what I remember was that they put a high flow oxygen on me, put the monitors on me. Uh, they were there for a few minutes and then after that they all left, close the door, close the curtain and left. Um, and so now you're alone, just just you in the room and your wife is not even there. My wife's not there yet. And then the, um, I remember the, the, one of the questions the nurse um, asked me um, before she left was, would you like a bath? And I'm thinking to myself, why the hell would I want a bath? I'm dying here. Um, and so I, you know, obviously I told her, no, thank you. And the so they all left. And now I'm sitting in a room by myself. I have this high flow oxygen going, and it is extremely hot. The, the air that's coming out of this high flow oxygen is just suffocating me. I couldn't breathe. And nobody gave me a button to push to ask for assistance. And so, like the typical Gomer, you know, I'm 57 years old and um, I was behaving just like an old sundown patient. Um, I got out of bed and the railing, railings were up and I was pretty weak. Um, and I couldn't holler loud enough to get somebody to come in the room to help me. So, I got out of bed, took the monitors off, and got hypoxic again. And my monitors went off. Nurses come running into the room, and they're like, what are you doing, what are you doing? And I said, I can't breathe, this thing is really hot. Um, I'm suffocating here, I need, y'all need to do something different. And um, the respiratory therapist um, looks at me and says, oh, you know, we can adjust the temperature on that um, high-flow oxygen. I'm thinking to myself, well, why the hell didn't you go through this with me before you left? Why didn't you adjust temperature, make sure I was comfortable before you left? You know, that was just a simple example of us not paying attention to what we do to patients. Um, patients hypoxic, patients um, unaware of what's going on, and you leave them in an uncomfortable situation. And so we're just not very thoughtful about what we do to patients. About um, six, eight months later, I'm, in the, I'm, I'm out of the hospital. I'm getting follow-up and getting chest x-ray or blood work or something in the outpatient clinic. And um, one of the techs there, uh, one of the um, admission clerks there um, was going through the records and looked at my record and said, you know, you, um, you owe the hospital $1,200. And um, and when I was in the hospital and after ho- being out of the hospital, I never received a bill. So obviously my insurance was was good and it covered all the care that was provided. Um so I didn't understand what the twelve hundred dollars were um, was about. So I asked her to um, just um, let me check on that, and we got my blood work done. And then I called the uh, hospital and asked for my bill to kind of go through and see which part that I why was it that I owe them twelve hundred dollars. So I looked at my bill, and just out of curiosity, I started going through about all the stuff that happened. You know, they charge you for every single thing that happens. And so um, in the first twenty four hours. Um, I think I had my blood work drawn six times um, for sodium and potassium and phosphorus and magnesium. I mean, how different is that going to be for somebody with pneumonia over twenty four hours? Why does that need to be done six times? Um, I had a my I had a type and cross done. I came in with pneumonia and did a type and cross. Why in the hell would I need type and cross? Um, so they drew so much blood out of me that by the, my Fifth day in the hospital, my hematocrit was twenty, and they asked my wife if they should transfuse me. Now that's really messed up, right? And so, these the reason all those um, lab works, um, lab studies were done, is because somebody just filled out a um, order set, and without being thoughtful, um, sick patient in the ICU, these are the labs that we normally drawn, and um, and so they did all those tests. Without thinking about uh, specifically, like, I have pneumonia. I don't need CBC every six hours. I don't need a hematocrit every six hours. I don't need a phosphorus, magnesium level every six hours. You know, it's just thoughtless care. So those are just simple examples of how we don't pay attention to patients. Yeah, just very reflexive or convenient for the resident to. Well, it's not the resident. I wouldn't blame the resident. It's, um, you know, the residents are only doing what's asked of them. And the residents you know i don't um so we have a healthcare system now where we have a lot of um algorithms and protocols and order sets and um a lot of residents don't pay attention to what actually is actually what's actually on those order sets they just sign up, they just sign off on it and um and a lot of it is you know people my generation's fault for creating these systems um, and now residents are not being held accountable to know what kind of orders to write, um, and and so we're trying to make this a protocol driven and um, a protocol driven system that provides more a seamless care, um, but somehow um, it's away taking away the opportunity for the resident to actually be thoughtful about what's needed in taking care of each individual patient who may be different.
5: Speaking of thoughtfulness, what was it like for you to be rounded on by the resident at four in the morning?
6: Yeah, so um, one of the things that's come out of this particular um, experience is that I think that we need to blow up the education process for our residents. Um, Our residents round at five in the morning. We have 60 patients, and they round at at five in the morning on 60 patients, and they report to us at 7 a.m. So that's 120 minutes. So they get two minutes per patient. And if we count it, the you know, walking around and so forth, they're getting a minute to minute and a half per patient. What are they accomplishing in a minute and a minute and a half per patient in the morning at 5 o'clock? Nothing. They're just going in and seeing the patient's alive. And so it's a useless waste of time for the residents to do that. Um, Our residents should come in at 6 o'clock and see the sick patients and then talk to us about the patients they were concerned about and then sometime during the rest of the morning, um, the team or the doctor, the attending, the nurse practitioner, the resident can then go and take care of the rest of the patients um, instead of having all this be done at 5 in the morning. Um, for our residents to, to undergo this ridiculous tradition of taking care of patients patient is, is mind-boggling to me. We need to really change that.
5: So when you say this, do you see yourself alone as shouting, saying, hey, this is absurd?
6: Are there other people that are, you know, high-level faculty such as yourself who believe in this? I don't know. Um, You know, I've never really talked about this with um, other faculty members. Um, And as as a surgeon, you know, a lot of us are pretty much traditionalists, and things don't change very fast. Um, But it's something that we really ought to be more thoughtful about, and— in a couple of weeks, I'm actually giving grand rounds at our hospital on this particular topic, and I'm gonna challenge our surgical leaders and surgical educators, and actually our residents, to help us um, move toward a change in how we take care of patients, how resident education should be done. Um, we shouldn't have these have our residents going around on patients at five in the morning. It's not good for our residents. It's not good for the patients. Um, we shouldn't do it because it's, it's convenient for me, for people like me, for the attendings.
5: So, sir, for you, I mean, you're a surgeon at UAB, that's where you received your care, and you have an avenue to advocate for yourself. What about this entire process, what do you think now that you've endured this process about the patient that is unable to advocate for themselves but have gone through a similar experience like yourself?
6: Yeah, you know, my wife um, was there just about the whole time and she's a physician. She's a surgeon. And um, I, I think the care was actually very, very good. Um, it's just these um, more minor things, that, thoughtless things that I think we can really improve on. These um, impersonal touches that happen um, without people being thoughtful. Those are the things that we can be, do better at. Um, my wife did have to um, advocate for me in the sense that communication um, line did um, have some cracks in them. Um, so one of the pulmonary fellows came one night to give me um, um TPA for my um, chest tube because I had plurifusion locolytic plurifusion. And the plan was to give me six doses. And, I, and that evening he came in, I had my last dose that morning, um, which was a six dose. Um, and the fellow apparently was given the task of coming by that evening to give the a dose of TPA. But I've already had my six doses, and my wife. Um, um, every time I had the medication, she thought I was uncomfortable, so she didn't want to ha- want me to get any additional doses because we the plan was six doses. And the fellow came in and said, "You know, he's got to instill TPA in my chest tube." And my wife says, "No." And the guy's like, "Well, yeah, you know, he needs a... And he, I don't think he realized my wife was is a surgeon, and um, and so he's like, "Well, yeah, you know, it was checked out to me that he's going to get TPA tonight." And my wife, um, is a compulsive and stickler for details. So she told, she named off every single time that I got the dose, exact time of the day. And, um, and so he's like, well, let me, let me go check the orders. So he walks out of the room. He went to look at, looked at the orders and the system says for me to get another dose. And a nurse who was taking care of me, she didn't know, you know, if I was supposed to get another dose or not. She hadn't been there, you know, the whole time. She's just, um, working her shift. So he comes back into the room and tries to talk my wife into getting, uh, giving me another dose of TPA. And she obviously was not gonna let that happen. And um, as he was leaving the room, he looks at me and says, um, sir, how are you doing? Um, and I said, well, you know, I'm doing much better than you. You're arguing with my wife. And for those of, <laughs> you, <laughs> for those of you out there who may know my wife, um, I think my wife figured I was finally getting a little bit better with that comment um but so these communication breakdown um probably would have been harmless but it, again there it, it potentially could be a harm, harmful harmful thing and so i think that we really need to figure out how do we do handoffs how do we communicate better um how do we talk to patients in a way that um what we say uh, is going to happen is going to happen you know i'll give you another example of kind of communication breakdown and, and and some examples of what we do on our own service, that kind of drives me crazy. So uh, I try to tell our, our residents and fellows that every single word you say to a child's parents or family, they hold on to it like um, like is a decree from God. And so you have to be careful and thoughtful when you talk to families. If you go walk into a room and... Um, in the morning to around at five in the morning, and this kid is post-op from Appy at 10 o'clock last night, and um, the plan is for the kid to go home um, soon, um, but the kid has been sleeping, had really hadn't eaten or drank anything, actually kind of vomited um, overnight, and you tell mom that you know, the plan is to send your child home, mom is really gonna be anxious. The kid hasn't tolerated any oral um, feeding, and you really haven't thought about is this kid really going to go home or not and so you spend 20 seconds with her you tell her she her child who's kind of sick is going to go home you've just increased the stress level for the family Um, and you've not really thought about is a kid really going to go home or not and so we really need to be careful one of the things that i'd really like for um, the residents um, to think about and for a faculty and whoever take care of patient think about is communication and how, when we talk to families and patients, um, what we say really does matter. And um, the um, when we talk to families and they really listen and pay attention to every single word we say, and um, and so we need to be careful with that. Um, our residents and fellows sometimes will get in, round on the patients at five in the morning on a patient who's post op and may or may not be ready to go home, um, perhaps have vomited a couple of times overnight and the resident think the patient's probably ready to go maybe in the afternoon, um, but tell parents that, you know, we're probably gonna send you home today. And the parents are gonna be quite anxious because the child's been throwing up overnight. Um, and for us to not be thoughtful about what we say to them um, just increases the stress for the families. Another thing that I kind of wanted to bring up about, you know, earlier when I was talking about being, a, the hospital runs like a prison, um, when I was in the ICU, uh, you know, I got blood work done at 2 in the morning, x-ray done, done at 4 in the morning. Um, it, it's really no reason for us to do that to patients. Uh, why do we need to wake them up at 2 in the morning or 4 in the morning for blood work? We're doing that for our convenience. And um, as, you, as you guys um, think about the healthcare system, I'd like to encourage the residents um, and empower the residents f- to feel like they can do something different um they can be thoughtful about how we take care of patients they can write orders for the x-rays and not be done um until seven or eight o'clock in the morning for the bl- blood work that um t- if you need to draw blood for some specific reason to have it done at a time that's reasonable for the patient it doesn't be- need to be done at two in the morning so it's convenient for you and you're attending f- to make decisions um those are small things that i think the residents can do um, and i want the residents to feel empowered to make changes to ask us to make changes, to ask the attendings think to be more thoughtful and to make changes. Um, unless we all are more proactive and thoughtful about this process, um, we won't be as good as we can be in taking care of patients. Absolutely. I
5: think, Dr. Chen, you've given us a chance and a charge uh, after dwelling in the darkness together here for, for a little bit, but I think that was necessary. Now. Um, to close things out, is there anything positive, some, something in the light that you experienced during your time in the ICU or or on the floor that inspired you or you saw at UAB that you hope will inspire
6: other people as well? Well, I think the um, our healthcare system. I mean, I was I was very very sick, and um, I almost um, had to be intubated. Almost had to go, you know. And then w- if once I got intubated, I probably would, may have needed to go on ECMO. So our healthcare system is very good at taking care of sick patients. I mean. People who come in with severe illness generally make it out of the hospital because of the advances in health care. Um, and so I don't want to belittle that. And um, and I'm grateful uh, for the health care I got. But I think that we can be better as in terms of the humanity behind how we take care of patients, um, to be thoughtful about how we take care of patients. And I don't want people to walk out of here thinking that I'm, that I'm dissatisfied or uh, um, unhappy with the healthcare system. We have the best healthcare system in the world. We have the best education system for for residents in in the world, no doubt about it. Um, But unless we think about how we get to do this better, we're just going to keep doing the same thing. So that's kind of how I'd like to leave it.
5: Yeah, and let's not be two-faced about this saying we're patient-centered in all we do when you take a look at this and see how messed up things are. We can always do better, and uh,
6: we're, do, we're doing a great job, but we can always do better.
5: Yeah, I think that's a great, a great charge and a final note to end on. Thank you, Dr. Chen, for your time. Thank you. Until next time, dominate the day.